The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, and I am your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And as you know, you can listen to us live every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And at the end of the day, we archive the show, and so you can download it and listen to it on your MP3s. Um, this morning, I have two guests. My first guest is Cynthia Good. She's really back. She was on the show a couple of years ago, so it's great to have her back this morning. Cynthia is the speaker, CEO, and founding editor of Little Pink Book. And we're going to be talking to her for a half an hour. And then next is Casey Matthews. Casey Matthews is an author. This is her first book. Uh, the title of her book is Preemie, Lessons in Love, Life, and Motherhood. So it's all about the women today. But uh, Cynthia has grown Little Pink Book into a national phenomenon, and that's very true. She's an inspiring businesswoman. Uh, she inspires businesswomen everywhere to achieve a beautiful career, a beautiful life, and have courage to do what they love. So welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Cynthia. Thanks so much, Catherine. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, and so much has happened. Um, and I have to preface this because I, when you, your Pink Magazine first came out, obviously I subscribed to it, and then I've been to, I think, two of your events, which we're going to talk about. But uh, let's start out about, just for uh, listeners who maybe are not familiar with the Little Pink Book, what is it? It's uh, basically, it's a daily e-note that goes out to women who want it all across the country. We even have women in foreign countries who are receiving it. And it's um, short and sweet, you know, really geared for women with very busy lives um, who are ambitious and want to make a difference in their career and in the world. And so it comes to you first thing in the morning, and it really has been shown to help women advance in their careers, really in the time it takes you to drink a cup of coffee, because it's just 250 words. Yeah, and it's a great website. And I guess my uh, I'm curious, because since you've started this website, now there are a lot of different websites for women and how they can be successful entrepreneurs. So what would you say to women? Why, why wake up in the morning with a cup of coffee and go to your website? And like, what does it have to offer that may be different, um, that can help them to get to success quicker, um, or just in general? Because, you know, we have so much stuff bombarding us. So I mean, true. I, yeah. You're so right. And these, you know, the easiest way to use Pink is to get the e-note so it just comes to you. It's in your inbox in the morning, and then you don't even have to go to a website. There's Little Pink Book, the app. So, you know, if you have the iPhone, you can get it that way. But basically, I think what distinguishes it from anything else that's available today is these are short stories created for women 
by women featuring some of the most influential and successful women on the planet. And by success, I don't mean that old definition, you know, the man in a skirt, you know, just the person who makes good money, has the corner office, has the title. These are women who really are living amazing lives and they're, they love what they do. And uh, one of the most popular things we do that women say really helps them is the profiles we do. So, uh, for instance, you know, we're always doing profiles on fascinating women so that you can see how did this woman accomplish all this so you realize how you can too. Because in many of these instances, women are doing great things and they're still the first like them to do it. I mean, even an example would be the CEO of the Girl Scouts. It's the first woman of color to be a CEO of the Girl Scouts in a hundred years. So, you know, once you see how she did it, ah, then you realize how you can do it too. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's it's inspiring. Their stories are inspiring, and I think you also mentioned Facebook. Uh, this the woman who's the first woman to sit on the board of Facebook. Well, right. I mean, just this week, Sheryl Sandberg, who is the chief operating officer of Facebook, has been put on the board of directors for Facebook, which is a pretty big deal. And actually, right on the site, on the homepage, I wrote about it in the blog this week because this just seems crazy in 2012 that we're even having this conversation. But nearly 11% of the Fortune 500 companies, Catherine, have not a single woman on their board of directors. So, you know, and of course, Facebook, most of those who use use it happen to be women. So we've seen their stock price go down. Obviously, something needs to be done. So it's nice to see that they move Cheryl over to one of those board seats. And hopefully that'll lead the way for so many of these other companies that have yet to move a woman into a director seat. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, I think you hit on a really important point. You're talking about 11%. Of, of corporations don't have women sitting on the boards. Is that just because it's the old boy network and now Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is 27, 28 years old. You just have a new generation who's willing to move forward. Is that the only reason that women are able to do this now? Right. I think the new generation is more open to it. The gender roles aren't, don't seem as pronounced for the millennials and some of the Xers. Um, and also, I think the marketplace is demanding it. You sort of have a black eye if you don't have any women on your board or any diversity. And, you know, people don't want to do business with you. And, you know, I mean, that's really the sweet spot for pink and why we've been able to attract blue chip companies that have become advocates of sharing great content, supporting women's advancement. You know, and they're all the companies you see on the site. Um, I don't want to do a commercial, but FedEx, Tardis, Coca-Cola, SunTrust, you know, so on and so forth. But it's important for organizations these days increasingly to demonstrate that they're advocates of women because women are the consumers. You know, it just doesn't make sense not to do it. And also, there have been tons of studies that show that the companies that have more women in senior level positions perform better financially. So at some point, you know, the guys have got to wake up and say, let's do the right thing for business in addition for the, to, for the world. Yeah, and I think it also gives them at this point, believe it or not, it took to be 2012, but bragging rights. We do have, you know, we have a woman sitting on our board, and that's a plus. I think one of the things I was reading this morning um, in the Little Pink book, you have the stay-at-home husband and the buzz about shifting gender roles, because I think that fits in here. Uh, women 
are in the workforce earlier and longer and sort of equal with their husbands, so they have the experience after 15 or 20 years to be in these positions because they have been working for, you know, out there in corporations and in the uh, corporate world. Well, you're really right, Catherine, but at the same time, I have to tell you that Sadly, the data indicates that there is a lot of stagnation and that women have not really progressed over the last several years. In fact, much of the data shows that women have moved backwards. Um, for instance, we're doing a big, big story that doesn't come out for a couple of months on women in global leadership roles. There is a smaller percentage of women now taking those positions than years ago. And across industries, we're only seeing about 17% of top leader positions are being held by women. And there's a lot of talk um, that you know, why is that the case? I think there was a perception that we were moving forward so well that maybe, according to some, women became a little bit more lackadaisical and didn't push as hard and fight as hard for those opportunities. And as a result, we lost them. That's what some people say. Um, But so it's really not, you know, we're really nowhere close to equity yet. I mean, When you look at CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, when Pink launched nearly eight years ago, we were at nearly 3%. We're still at 3%. So what does that, you know, do you think that has to do with, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you're successful, you've done it, uh, you have two children. I mean, we ha- I think we have to bring in the children piece here. There's always the mo- mother and the, the, the taking care of the children is always an issue. And I, I still think it's an issue in terms of why women don't get ahead or aren't sitting on those corporate boards or being CEO of companies. Men still don't have that same issue with staying home with the children, I think. I think you're right. And I think, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head. And this week, one of the big buzz stories in in my space is an article, it's a cover story article in The Atlantic that talks about, uh, you know, a woman who said, you know what, no thanks, I'm not going to be with the big guys anymore in Washington because I just can't do it all. One of my kids is struggling in school and there are problems. And, you know, and she talked about the uh, extreme reaction to her decision and the extreme disappointment um, from women who, you know, want to see more women getting ahead, mostly the boomers. Um, and, you know, the question is, can you have it all? And I think that it really gets back to how important it is to define success, Catherine, on your own terms. It's not about what your dad thinks, you know, quantifies success. It's not about society. It's not about, you know, making as much money as you possibly can. It's what do you as an individual want for your life? And I think we feel under so much pressure and pulled in so many directions from the kids and the family and from the corporate side and, you know, all of it, that it's really a challenge to go in a quiet space and say, you know, yeah, I'm going to shoot for the top. But what is the top right now at this time in my life for me? And you know what? I've, like you said, I've got two kids. I'm a business owner. You know, I'm in a good place right now, but I'm feeling really lucky, and it's not always like that, you know, and sometimes, you know, things change, and, and we have to make hard choices based on what makes us happy, because that's what success has to be defined by, not some, you know, thing outside of us that says you have to be this, this, and this. 
Yeah, the definite. I think that's important, and we sh- I should reiterate that the the definition of success has to be each woman's own definition of success. I mean, you are self-described, and I'm I'm just getting this from you, the website, but familiarnaire. That's a new term I hadn't he- hadn't heard <laughs> well, before. Well, we made it up. <laughs> I like the term. What does it mean to you? How, you know how you know what is success to you? Because I assume that it's associated with the familiarnaire term. <laughs> <laughs> right, it is, and it's and it's something that my husband and I coined. And you know, we're both business owners, and very the works were very all about making a difference to our work, and we love what we do. And at the same time, we're very clear that our riches are in our family, um, and that's where we find the most joy. So that makes us a millionaire to have the riches in our family. Well, let me ask you this. You just said you're a successful entrepreneur. So is your husband. You have the two boys. On a day-to-day basis, how do you handle it? I mean, you talk about you know, telling your story because I'm interested in how you handle it. And the, one of the boys has to go to the dentist or he has to go to the soccer games or whatever it is in your family that the kids do. Um, do you stop doing your work and take them or does your husband or do you share or what's the balance? Yeah, all of the above. And funny, right before we went on the air live, um, I, I got a note from one of the members of my team, Danielle, and our PR group, uh, Pitch Public Relations, and they said, you know, Cynthia, you have this interview on this Saturday. And Danielle from Pink wrote back, you know what? She doesn't do interviews on weekends. <laughs> I don't care who it's with. Um, you know, so you have to be really careful about setting parameters and being really specific about what your priorities are. Always letting your activities support your priorities and putting the big priorities first. Uh, but, you know, certainly being a business owner is a great thing for women because it does give you a certain degree of flexibility. We'll be traveling for part of the summer, so I'll be working from wherever I am, and the office knows that, and so I, you know, give myself that luxury and that flexibility. Uh, Early on, we worked out a system where my husband cooks because he loves to cook, which is great because I don't. You found a great guy. What's that? I said, you found a great guy. I'll look for someone who Well, cooks. you know, but it's not about that. It's about being really clear about what you want and being demonstrative about it. I mean, there was a time, Catherine, where I worked every day at a, at a job for somebody else, so I didn't have the flexibility, and I had to do all the grocery shopping and cooking. And finally, one day, I got my husband, this is a secret, got him to make dinner, and he made the typical guy meal, right? Huge piece of meat, right? That right. you put on the grill. <laughs> so this huge piece of meat went on everyone's plate, and I said, all right, boys, stand up. And at the end, we gave him a standing ovation. And I got to tell you that from that day on, he loved to cook. That's and great. now, yeah, so now he's gotten into vegetables and carbs, and, you know, he's making some really great meals. I'm just, you know, happy that he does it, and, and he enjoys it, so it's a win-win. Yeah, so you have to share, and, you know, he, now he's become a creative cook, but you had to give him the accolades first, but that's okay. Uh, men do well, grill for some reason. They're the grillers. Yeah, I'm not sure. And yeah. I, don't, I honestly do not believe that these things happen by chance. I don't believe, oh, you're lucky you married a good guy. I believe that we have to be really clear about what works for us in our lives and what doesn't, and then what do you do about it. And with regard to life balance, I think back, and I remember feeling so guilty that I couldn't see my kids, and then I changed our work schedule, so we telecommute on Wednesday, so I actually had a chance to pick 
the boys up on Wednesdays. And it's so funny that just that one little thing made all the guilt go away. So I think so often as women, we say, you know what? Too bad. You're just going to have to live with the guilt. Too bad. You're just going to have to cook dinner every night. Get over it. But I think the, the guilt and that uh, in your gut tells you you need to do something about it. And, you know, it's up to us. You have the responsibility to do something about that. And you know what? Your kids are going to be happier. Your husband's going to be happier. Your company you work for is going to be happier because you are. That is such a good point. And I think that women and I'm generalizing as well, but I think that women see trying to maintain that work, a home balance is an overwhelming kind of situation. Either they're going to cook dinner every night or they're not going to cook at all. And as you say, you know, you can split it up. You take pieces. It, sometimes it only takes change one little thing, right. and it changes everything. But you have to be aware of it, and you have to say it. I mean, so yeah. many women fume about it and they're angry right. and they'll talk to right. their girlfriends and they'll get it out and, right. and that's good but you can't but it's hostility it still lingers yeah and you um, have to speak to your partner about it and make and, those choices and stick to the boundaries and the, the mantra at pink really is courage to do what you love and certainly we think about it in, in a work career context but i think it applies to all aspects of your life and you know, let's see, 15-plus years ago when I went into my office, I worked in TV news, and I said, I want a flex schedule. They looked at me like I was crazy because no one invented that term, and I'm sure I didn't even use that. But the cool thing is today, Catherine, more and more big companies, and I was meeting yesterday even with some folks from Grant Thornton, more companies like even firms like that are now offering flexible schedules because they know if they're going to keep great women, you know, there needs to be some wiggle room for certain during certain times in your life. But you know what? You're not going to be able to take advantage of it unless you have the courage to stand up and say, you know what? I really want to continue contributing to the organization, but I need a little wiggle room. Let's talk about how we can make this a win-win scenario. And I think technology has helped us to do that as well because you can be at home in your office uh, and you have a computer and you have Skype and there are all these ways to connect that you don't actually have to go to the office. I think that's a real plus for women. So true. Absolutely. Uh, tell us, uh, you know, I was thinking, what, you know, what, are the, what do women come to you for um, as the most difficult Thing that for them in order to be successful. And I'm not talking about being CEO of a corporation. I'm talking about what most people, what you know, most women do, professional women, uh, business women. Uh, you know, what, what would you say in the past 10 years, because you've been in this business, um, what, what's the most difficult for them, thing for them to achieve? Because not all women also don't necessarily have a partner or a husband. There are single women who have to do this with their children on their own. Uh, which right. Is another, yeah, that's another challenge. Well, I mean, there there are a lot of different challenges out there. One of the things that I love so much is on every story, every e-note that comes out in the morning and goes to your inbox, at the bottom, there's a place to have a dialogue. And you can say, this is what happened to me. And you can read about other women. So, to answer your question, I look at the traction that the different stories actually get. For instance, we just recently did a piece on running on empty, which goes along with what we were just talking about. Oh, my gosh, we got an earful. The women are saying, you know, look, this is what I'm dealing with, and certainly that's a big issue. 
Um, I think a lot of women are struggling, um, you know, obviously this, these days with the job market being so tight, you know, to find a job and especially trying to figure out how they can find work that they love because it's so important today and, and the millennials really get it to be able to do something that, you know, this is a big chunk of your life and you should enjoy what you're doing. So that's a challenge. Um, when it comes to women business owners, it's about growing and scaling. And by the way, it's every Monday we do stories just for women business owners to help them grow their business. So it's, you know, how do you scale your business? How do you grow it? Um, only depending on what stats you look at, 1.8% of 3% of women business owners hit the $1 million revenue mark. So very few women are going beyond that. That's an issue for them. Why do um, they get, I want to stop you because I think that's, in, why do, in your opinion, why do they get stuck? Why can't they go beyond? Oh, why can't well, they we just get did a big million? pink storm session on this just yeah. this week, actually, and, and one of the experts said her feeling is that, um, you know, there are lots of theories on this, but her feeling is that we like to micromanage everything and that when a woman launches a company, she launches it because, like for me with Pink, I love sharing the stories and the editorial and the interviews. Well, you know what? If I'm going to run a multi-million dollar company, I'm not going to be doing every interview. I'm not going to be writing every story. So her point, the expert's point was it's really really about when you start your company to know, yes, you're going to be involved in every single detail, but the goal is to ultimately let that go and let somebody else do, you know, those different pieces of the company so then you can expand. And that will help you get beyond that half million dollar mark. And I think a lot of women, you know, go into the business and they want to keep it small because it's about lifestyle. And yet there is an opportunity to grow much bigger and to benefit financially. And the other thing we talked about during the Entrepreneur Pinkstorm session we did was that women don't ask for enough. If you even watch those shows like Shark Tank, oh, they give up all their equity and they say, thank you so much for investing. And, you know, we need to uh, negotiate better and ask for more and expect more and give away less. And I think that'll help us grow too. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think just going along with what you said, you have to, if you're going to expand, you can't do it all. And, you know, when women... I think traditionally when you're at home, don't find it so difficult, I'll speak for myself, difficult to get a cleaning lady or get someone to help babysit for the kids or someone to mow the lawn, and I'm really good at organizing the household. But when you translate that into a business, somehow it's as you described it, I'm going to do everything myself. And if you just kind of translated what you do, are able to manage a house into managing a business, I think we'd be more successful. I think that's a great point. I do remember early on, you know, having a nanny and feeling like, oh, my gosh, am I paying somebody to live my life? And there was a certain amount of, you know, anxiety associated with that. But then once you just let go, every all the pieces seem to, you know, fall into place. And then you do have a chance to accomplish more of what you're hoping to. Yeah, I, I think that's important. And I, I'm not – women are – I think, yes, one of the, I mean, women are reluctant to get help for whatever reason that is. We're supposed to do it all. And speaking of doing it all, here's another piece, and you talked about the baby boomers. Now the baby boomers have families to take care of, businesses to take care of, and elder parents to take care of. So yeah, how do you incorporate that into your schedule? 
Right. It's a lot to manage. And, you know, women are, you know, trying to juggle so many balls. And I think it comes back to what you said, just needing that support. And also we're doing actually a lot of finance pieces. Well, so Monday's entrepreneurs, right? Tuesday's is financial independence. And we're doing some stories about, you know, thinking about your own long-term care and, you know, getting your own documents into place so that you protect your own credit. And, you know, certainly talk with your aging parents to make sure that all of their financials and documents are in line because that's a great way to, you know, get into deep trouble to make sure that they're cared for too, which again goes back to being intentional and that planning in advance so you're prepared for things like that because as you said, typically that ends up falling on the shoulders of, of women. Do you find that men are threatened by women's financial independence, even though they may enjoy the fruits of their labor, the women's labor, that there's some sense that their wife shouldn't be making as much as they or more and that they maybe resent it or that that becomes an issue? I think that boils down again to different generations. Certainly that is the case, you know, when it comes to the baby boomers who have really been taught that as men, their role and responsibility is to act as a provider. So there's still a lot of challenges around that. But the younger generation, not so much, uh, you know, goes with some of those shifts that we are seeing. And part of that is I even read one study that showed that men today are looking for women who are not just attractive, you know, and all those other have a good person personality, all those other things, but who are doing well financially. So I think it's starting to work in our favor and everyone's becoming more comfortable with it. So that's a good thing. Yeah. I, I've noticed when I go out to restaurants now, uh, I would say that not, I mean, maybe eight times out of 10, I'm making up this st- statistic, but I go to a restaurant and I see at the end of the meal, the women are the ones who take out the credit cards and, and pay for it. I mean, I'm seeing this, and all, I mean, probably more, as you say, in the millennials and Generation X, but even with the baby boomers. And the real trick, I think, Catherine, will be for women to be more comfortable with filling that role. And I recently spoke with Mary Catherine Bateson, who's a daughter of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, right, a social anthropologist. And she was saying that her concern and one of the reasons why she doesn't think women have gone further in business is because we still, many of us, have this idea of uh, we're, we're working for pin money and we're not taking ourselves seriously enough. And certainly more of the single moms and women who are, you know, opting to be single, that's changing with the younger generations. But I think for those who are a little bit older, we still have that idea of ourselves. And when we talk about the glass ceiling at Pink, we talk about the double glass ceiling, right? It's the one out there in the world, you know, corporate America, society, and it's the one in our own minds, right? Our own limitations that we set for ourselves. So that's still a big obstacle, I think, just the way we think of ourselves. I would agree with you, and I think that taking ourselves seriously, I mean, that's the key. I mean, if we don't take ourselves seriously, neither is anybody else. If we don't take our job seriously, if we don't take how much money we make seriously, and take ownership of, of that we take, I mean, very often, I, and here's another piece of it, I'll see women who earn a good living, but they don't really want to sort of own up to it, that they're the ones who are earning the money and they, right. sort of, yeah, they present it very differently as if perhaps their partner or their husband is the one who's earning the money. I see that a lot. 
You're so right. In fact, yeah. one of the stories that we did was humility, and all these are on littlepinkbook.com for anyone to see, but humility is not such a good thing in this sense. You know, the guy is going to go out and he's going to tout his accomplishments and be proud of it. And I think more of us have the chance and really ought to do the same and have the courage to step up and say, you know, this is what I want to change about my work, about my life, and to have the nerve to negotiate in the first place and to build those relationships and then to ask for more because it's important to be greedy for happiness. The world benefits when you are. Greedy for happiness. I like that expression. That's um, all right, so what do we want to, we have like a few minutes left. What have we not covered? Well, first of all, I want to be really specific about how women who are listening can go to the website every morning, information that they can get from you, what's happening. I know you do these programs also across the country where you, big events, and so tell us something about that. Well, we do. We're about to have our eighth annual signature fall empowerment event. It will be November 13th. It will be in Atlanta, but we'll probably will be broadcasting it live. By the way, all this stuff, well, the events, there's a price for lunch, but everything else we do, all the e-notes are free, and um, we will likely be broadcasting this event for anyone to tune into live for free. Um, we assemble some of the most influential women in business on the panels. They share their success secrets, how they got there, how they dealt with some of the same obstacles we're talking about today. So you really get a broad perspective from different women in different industries about how they're doing it, what they love, what they don't how they make it work so you can too. And it's really just a chance for all this great wisdom that women share through Little Pink Book to come to life. Um, so those are a lot of fun too. And, and we have details on, you know, who's spoken at past events and also their success secrets for anyone who wants to see that. We just did a, a series uh, for women business owners um, last month. So it was just great to hear their wisdom. Fantastic. Well, obviously, you're doing it. You've done it, and you continue to do it. And, I'm learning uh, every day, and that's learning why I every do day. It. I, that, you know, that's a oh, really yeah. good thing. Yeah, learning every day, and it, it evolves. I think it's always about the evolution of all this stuff, and you do learn every you, you do learn every day from the business. Cynthia Good, speaker, CEO, and founding editor of Little Pink Book. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. I yeah. enjoyed it. Great talking to you. We are going to take a break. Um, my next guest, my second guest, is author Casey Matthews. She's author of Preemie, Lessons in Love, Life, and Motherhood. Um, in her early 30s, Casey Matthews had it all, a loving husband, a beautiful two-year-old son, and a second baby on the way. But what seemed a perfect life was shattered when she went into labor four months early. So we are going to be talking to Casey about her new book, Preemie. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesdays live, 10 to 11. And at the end of the day, we archive the show, and uh, you can uh, download it uh, on your M- for an M- with it MP3. Uh, my guest is Casey Matthews, author of Preemie, Lessons in Love, Life, and Motherhood. And uh, before the break, as I told you, Casey, in her early 30s, uh, well, she thought she had it all, a loving husband, a beautiful two-year-old son, and a second baby on the way. But there were surprises uh, with her second pregnancy, Pregnancy, and this is a memoir about her daughter. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks, Catherine. I'm honored to be on. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, yeah, I read your book, uh, and it is inspiring. Um, what, I guess, but the question is, what inspired you to write the book, Preemie? Why did you write it? I mean, now you have... You, Well, I'm not going to tell the end of the story. (laughs) Well, the end gives itself away when you look at the front cover and see my 11-year-old right there, so that's that's okay. But um, one of the main reasons I wrote it is um, after my daughter Andy was born, I felt so deeply alone. And part of the reason I felt so alone is I kind of kept it really hidden deep inside of me how terribly afraid of her I was and the anxiety and fear that I felt overwhelmed all the love that I could try to muster up. It it just blanketed everything. So I carried that forever and, and for so long and didn't say to anybody that I was feeling that way. And I searched for books and other women who would have said, you know, that they were so afraid of this baby that didn't really look like the typical Gerber baby and that they wanted to run the other way. And I even, you know, wrote in the book how I just 
wanted to throw her away and start over. And I thought, I must be such a bad person. What kind of mother would feel that way? And finally, it was seven years out when I thought, I cannot have been the only mom who's ever felt that way. And I know other mothers must have, but nobody has stood up and said it, so I'm going to raise my hand and stand up and be the one who says it out loud. And you did. And we. And I think we have to mention it again. Andy was born. She weighed one pound, 11 ounces. She did. One, yeah, one pound, 11 ounces. That's terrifying. Um, let's get back and kind of, as you discuss in the book, too, because, you know, here you are, you, you have a, a healthy two-year-old son. Let's talk about expectations, because, you know, I've had three children, and I know, you know, after the first, and you have a healthy baby, so you get pregnant again, and you are, you know, expectation is the same thing is going to happen. That's uh, right. But, well, and even with my firstborn, I was somewhat of a reluctant new mother. You know, there's no manual out there that tells you how it's all going to go and how you do it all. And when he was born, healthy, on his due date, weighing eight pounds, I was pretty afraid then, thinking, wow, this is another human life that suddenly I'm responsible for. And and that's pretty daunting in itself. But I, I guess I would also say that I took childbirth for granted, pregnancy and childbirth, that you just, you know, in today's day and age, you just, you get pregnant and everything moves along and you have a healthy baby, 10 fingers, 10 toes kind of thing, so that nothing did prepare me for um, the circumstances that did not go that way. So what happened with Andy uh, and giving birth, what you gave birth at at, uh, five months, um, did, how, did you find out why or how or are Yeah, I never found out why, and that was so frustrating for so many years because literally I was halfway through my pregnancy, and suddenly, you know, I was in labor, and I didn't even know I was in labor because I didn't know I could be in labor kind of thing. It was one a Sunday morning right after Thanksgiving, and the nurse at Brigham Women's in Boston said, you better come in, we better check you out, and I was three centimeters dilated, and they tried, they put me on um, sulfur magnesium and tried to hold off the labor, and they did for 24 hours, which was enough time to give me steroid shots to help develop the baby's lungs, but I didn't even know a baby could survive at that size, um, let alone what long-term consequences or outcomes would be, anything like that, but I kept clinging to the and begging to understand why and asking every doctor, every nurse, why, 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 and they kept saying, we'll never know, we don't know, sometimes it just happens, it's nothing you did, and that was the big pieces. I kept replaying in my mind the days, the weeks, the months prior, what did I do wrong? It had to have been something that I did, and there was a lot of self-blame, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame with all of that. So how do you think you could change that? Obviously, writing a book like this and sharing your experience is going to do part of it, but uh, that did that theme did, uh, I think, permeate the book, like, it's my fault. And I think that's kind of a normal reaction. I could have done something or I shouldn't have done something or what did I do and blaming yourself. That's one question maybe associated with that is, is there anything that the hospital staff or the nurses or the doctors could have done to help you to... Um, alleviate some of that guilt, to make you feel less alone. Um, how can they do You know, as a social worker, I'm interested because, and having done a lot of social work, um, you know, social workers are confronted with families and uh, families in situations with preemies. And so did I ask you four questions? <laughs> I got them all. <laughs> I'm ready. All right, good. Um, one, one of the, for me, that idea of 
discovering that I'm not alone and validating. So the validation, if, if somebody had said to me, um, a very normal response in this situation is to feel guilty, is to feel ashamed, to want to understand why. It took me writing this book to discover that 40% of preemie parents will never know why, that it just happens. I think there is coming into very often medical situations, whether it be pregnancy, premature birth, or anything else, Oftentimes you come in and the medical staff is operating at a level that they assume people have basic knowledge of and that they're kind of on par with where they are. But like I said, I knew nothing about premature birth or anything at all. So really stepping back and laying a groundwork to even have a very basic understanding. I talk about like if, you know, if someone's going to learn to ski, you have to explain that you have to first put skis on your feet. And I was at a place where I didn't have any skis on, so I knew nothing about this. So I think taking it back a couple steps and just giving a really basic level and saying these are normal responses. If you're feeling this, that would have been really helpful for me to have somebody validate it and say, oh, you're not alone in feeling this way. That's common. Uh, and I think uh, another thing that you mentioned in the book, and, and it seemed to me this would be common too, you really didn't want to see your daughter at first. It's a scary thing. It's, it's you know, and, and feeling that, you know, why wouldn't I want to see my daughter and feeling badly about that because here this is a one pound per one and a Eleven ounce, one pound, eleven ounce person. That's really terrifying to go to me. It would be going up in the NICU unit and seeing her, because uh, that sounds like that's kind of like the the next step. Like, yeah, and a, yeah, and I Mom. write about it in that scene how um, we didn't ever see her immediately after she was born. She was whisked away by a team of pediatric doctors, taken to the NICU, and I was taken to a recovery room. And a nurse came in to say, we're taking you to see your baby. And I said, I don't want to. I'm not ready. And I was taken anyway. And the scene, it, the, I write as if it's somebody else's life a scene, but it was mine. And there I am in the NICU looking at my daughter that looked, you know, really like an alien to me. There was nothing about her that was looking like any baby I'd ever seen. And that was so traumatic and so terrifying that I didn't want to go back. And it took days for my husband to convince me to go back and see her. But again, nobody had ever told me that that coping mechanism was normal. And so again, I'm berating myself thinking there's something really deeply wrong with me. What kind of mother would ever respond and feel that way? And I'm I thinking, did, you know, I just want to interrupt because this has now been several years. Have you noticed, are there any changes in hospitals and NICU units as a social worker? It would seem to me uh, that would be a person to talk to, to, you know, come in and discuss some of these feelings that you're having. Um, and it should be part of the NICU program. I mean, yeah, in terms and, of and that's been a wonderful thing that I've been hearing. Again, there, you know, there are... 1,600 NICUs throughout the country, and every single one is individualized. There's no standard protocol per se. But what I am hearing is what's happening now is parents are being offered the opportunity to look at a photo album, to see a video ahead of time. And that, again, is by choice. Before you go, would you like to look at these photos? Would you like to see this video that will give you a sense of what you're going to see? And I would have jumped at that opportunity a step beforehand to soften 
the blow and to, you know, give you a sense that if I had even just seen one photograph of what a 25-week-old baby looked like, I, I for two days thought she was the smallest baby that had ever been born in the world. I didn't know of, there had ever been a baby that small. And a nurse said to me when I said that out loud, have you ever seen a baby this small? She said, oh, honey, this hospital floor is full of babies this small. You know, so that would have been really helpful. And I think those changes are being implemented, hopefully, um, on a nationwide basis. But from what I'm hearing, it's, it's happening. Well, I mean, that, that, that's a good thing. And as I was reading your book, I'm thinking I just came back from uh, a friend of mine who's at the other end of the life cycle, and she's dying in hospice. And I, it's the first time I had been associated with hospice on a personal level and spent four days with her and her sisters. And it was just the opposite experience is what you're describing with a new life because they have kind of all these similar issues. But they make it so that you do feel comfortable and, you know, prepare you and prepare the family and, and, and not make it so um, sterilized, not make it a sterilized process of dying and all of those things. I mean, it just that, it sort of struck me. If we can do that at that end of the life cycle, why can't we do it in the beginning? Mm, that's, that's a wonderful um, comparison, and yeah. that's something really to be said right there. There's a perfect model that already exists. Exactly, and it's a great model, and it's, uh, yeah, and that, so we already have the model, we just have to, have to do it. Start to implement um, I think the hospitals are starting to recognize, they're calling it family-centered care, and I've had a lot of people say, thank you for writing this book, we're going to use this in the hospital to show the doctors and the nurses how important it is that we treat not only the baby as the patient, but the parents, because a baby's going to heal much better and faster if the parents are whole and healed as well, and they're starting to recognize and see that the importance of that is treating the family as the patient. Yeah, and and the family is the patient. That's so true. Whether it's mom and dad, whoever the family is, yeah. there are lots of combinations and permutations of families, but they all need to be involved if they're going to be connected to the new baby, to the preemie. I guess that kind of brings me. Casey, to the next question about your husband. I mean, how does he fit into all of this? I mean, um, I, sometimes, and, and maybe you'll disagree with me, um, some of the younger uh, couples that I know, when, um, when the, the uh, wife or the girlfriend, whoever it is, gets pregnant, it's always, we're pregnant. And I'm always thinking, no, we're not pregnant. You're pregnant. You're both going to be parents, but only one of you is pregnant. Mm. And, yeah, and there's a difference, and that's Okay. But, um, and I don't know how that fits into this, but kind of, you know, um, you know being the father, uh, there are different issues, and, and it, I think it can also create issues between couples. So, can, Oh, yeah, it's a yeah. rough road. But part yeah. of, you know, there are so, there's so many multifaceted reasons why I wrote the book, but one of them was to show a role model of a dad who really stepped up, who wasn't afraid to open his heart and love with everything he had. A stereotypical response of the preemie couple is usually mom is the one who steps in and dad busies himself with work and kind of checks out. And we were really the exact opposite. Like I said, I was terrified and I wanted to run and I wanted to devote all my attention to my two-year-old at home who I had really spent every moment with since he'd been born. But my husband was the opposite of the typical male response. He stepped in. He held vigil by our daughter's bedside, our NICU, and saying, you know, 
I am here for you, I am going to be here for you, and I'm going to give you everything possible. And he, one of the most beautiful things is his patience with me in allowing me to come to a place and a time when I was ready. He didn't push me. There came a moment two or three days after Andy had been born that he stood in the hospital doorway of my room when he was headed back up to the NICU, so he's sort of checking on going between the two of us. And he turned in the doorway and he looked at me and he said, you know, at some point you are going to have to go see her. And that was a very significant moment for me because after he left, what happened is I saw this vision of two paths and one ended in a funeral in a week and the other was this just gorgeous five-year-old in our backyard running in the green grass. And I thought, that's it. That's the vision I'm going to see and I'm going to hold on to. And I did throughout the entire time. I just kept seeing that child five years out. And when my husband came back, I shared that with him and I said, I'm ready to go. And and we moved on. And I, I talk about how that was sort of the beginning of becoming a preemie parent at that moment for me. And he allowed me the space and the time to come to that place, which was such a gift. And I think the one of the most important things was the communication between the two of us and saying our thoughts and feelings out loud and taking the time to be with each other outside of the hospital so that we could connect and talk about those things because we could have really gone in such an opposite direction and, and you know, without the communication, move farther apart. I think that is key, the communication, being able to say what you may think is the unsailed unsayable or yep. the unthinkable but you have to say it because you want because otherwise it's the elephant in the room and as you say sometimes <clears throat> two parents or one will just shut down that's and right. obviously that's not good you mentioned the term preemie parent preemie parent now a preemie let's you know and your daughter is uh what she's five or seven now my daughter is 11 now 11 now oh my yeah God. she's 11 why did i say okay so she's 11 that, years old and yeah. you talk about this is an, an appropriate question, preemie parent, once you, you bring her home and she has been a preemie, is there a sense of having to, and I, there are some issues uh, it's, in, that you mentioned in the book uh, that you had to deal with that may or may not be different than having a full-term baby, medical issues and things like that, but um, did you always feel, did you have this sense of being overprotective that you know, are, are, are more difficult to let go of her than say it was to let go of your son? It's so interesting because I, I always think of myself as kind of this laid-back mom and, you know, very easygoing with my children. And when after leaving the NICU, you begin early intervention, and that goes on for three years with different therapists coming in your home. And we, you have one coordinator who oversees the whole, whole program. And at one point, she said to me something about me being the mama lion, and I hadn't even realized how I was keeping my baby sort of pulled to me and not going to let anybody else close. And it is, um, you have to deliberately, I think, as a preemie parent, open yourself up to allow yourself. It's hard to let go as a parent of a healthy newborn. Um, a preemie, you know, you work so hard to make all these milestones and get to where you are that it's all these little things that, oh, can I let my child do this? And I was just telling someone the other day, we were talking about hippotherapy, which is um, horseback riding for children. And so much of um, what a lot of preemies have are core issues where their muscle tone is low. 
and one of the recommendations is horseback riding on the hippotherapy, and that was recommended to us when Andy was three years old, and I just couldn't do it. I could not imagine putting my little three-year-old on the back of a horse for God forbid anything were to happen. And those were little examples where, and then she kept asking as she got older, really interested in horses. So as a first grader, she kept pushing me and pushing me to take riding lessons, and I finally let her. But I remember just standing up on the hill looking down in the riding ring thinking, please let her be safe, please let her be safe. And I think those are typical parent responses all the time, but it's a little bit to a higher degree with the preemie. And there are also just moments that are just so magical where you think, look at from whence this child has come and look at her. You know, she's my daughter's a ski racer. And when she came down through the end of the ski course, that very first time she did the race with this enormous smile on her face, I fortunately had ski goggles on because they were just filled with tears, you know, so... Yeah, I think you carry it with you, and, and I'm not sure it ever leaves. That, I was just going to ask you, do you think it ever leaves? Or now she's 11 years old, she's a ski racer, she's ridden horses, and obviously I'm sure lots of other things that you thought she would never be able to do or that you wouldn't allow her to do, not that she couldn't do them. Right. Um, so, But it's still there, I guess. That I, That's just part of who she is, who you are in your relationship. It's funny, I was just, I received a letter from a woman the other day who read the book, and she had had triplets, and um, one of them, they were born at like 32 weeks, and one of them was the micro-preemie size, and she said it was about six months after they were born um, when she was talking to other preemie parents that she realized she would always be a preemie parent. Sort of once you are in that club, that never goes away. Your your child outgrows their preemie status and they go on, but as the parent, you're always sort of in that place of remembering how fortunate we are to um, have had our child survive and then go on to thrive. No, the the only relationship that we haven't covered, Casey, is the relationship between your daughter and your son. And I, I, I'm, he was young, obviously. He was what two years old. Yeah. When, you know, when Andy was born. So I'm not. Is it an issue with between the siblings? Does I mean sometimes one sibling may feel you pay too much attention to the my sister and less attention to me? And do you have to be aware of that? Or maybe not for a two year old, but maybe if he were older. I'm not sure. I mean, that seems to me that could come up. It's there's several layers to it because first of all, you know, here you are pregnant and you're preparing, reading the book, you're going to be a big brother and all this, and then suddenly a two-year-old who's been anticipating this is a big brother, but there's no baby. You know, where's this mystery baby that's living at a hospital that a two-year-old isn't really able to come in and see? And again, you know, technology, now there are video cameras that are allowing siblings who are outside the NICU to be able to see their siblings, but it was heartbreaking then because because Tucker didn't have his baby at home. So he actually, in his own brilliance, he was a real truck guy, and he asked for a doll. And we were very surprised by that. And we went to the toy store, and he picked out a doll. And he carried that baby doll around for the three months that Andy was in the NICU and named her Andy, and he would put her in the bassinet and say, shh, the baby's sleeping and care for her that way. So that was interesting how he managed that himself. Um, when she came home, it was the typical new baby at home, big brother jealousy stuff, a book I loved um, and still refer to as siblings, 
um, oh gosh, I wish I could think of the name of it right now. Siblings, siblings without rivalry, I think is what it's called. And that was a big help for me because you come home and you wonder, is this normal new baby stuff or is this preemie stuff? And so a lot of the sibling relationships were just typical new baby sibling relation stuff, not necessarily preemie stuff. Perhaps my stuff being a little overprotective was an added part of that. Yeah, um, interesting you should say that because, I mean, I have three boys and uh, two years apart, and sibling, I like that, siblings about rival, rivalry. Called siblings without rivalry. That's yeah, it. well, they had sibling rivalry, <laughs> as you're describing it, and bringing the new baby home wasn't very exciting, and uh, one of them even said, that, well, my mother was there take, helping me, and Grammy can take him home. She, he expected that uh, my mother would take the baby home with her because <laughs> we'd had enough of him. And That's right. it was time, yeah. And uh, each one of them was that way. But you know, so that is normal stuff. But I consider uh, myself lucky in that Andy had a big brother because I knew what was n- typical new baby stuff as opposed to what was t- typical preemie stuff. And Tucker also was her um, greatest challenger and champion. He would, as she got older, be out in the backyard, come on, Andy, race me, do this. And all these therapists that were working with her would say, none of us will be able to match the physical work he's doing with her. He is by far her best therapist because he's challenging her and she wants to achieve. And they would race across the backyard and he'd say, I win, and she'd say, I lose. And um, he was constantly pushing her. So that was invaluable. Uh, as I, we only have a couple minutes left, so I always like kind of at the end of, of the interview to ask you, is, is there any point or you know, kind of salient point that you'd like to leave listeners with that we haven't covered? Mm. One of the themes that I feel like when I come away from the book, what was one of the most important things I learned from having Andy and then chronicling all of it in preemie and, and taking it from start to finish, and I look back and I think, wow, if only I had back then known that it was a choice and I could have chosen love over fear. That's one of my things I think, oh, just let your heart open up and know that even though the baby doesn't look like <laughs> the typical baby, that every soul in there is perfect and allow yourself to open and to love and to hold the vision of possibility. It's the one of the other main reasons I wrote the book is to offer a picture of hope. I, When Andy was born, I didn't know what a baby of 25 weeks could possibly look like. And if I had seen a picture of this child that's on the cover of the book, I would have felt so much more hopeful. I would have felt so much less afraid, and I think I would have opened my heart a lot more. Well, you are an inspiration to other parents, and with your book and also with the, the kinds of interviews that you're doing, um, Casey Matthews, you can go to CaseyMatthews.com, K-A-S-E-Y-M-A-T-H-E-W-S. The title of the book, again, is Preemie, Lessons in Love, Life, and Motherhood. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Yeah, great to have you. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America Variety com and World Talk Radio. Hope you had a good morning, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. 
Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.